0: Good morning again. As you can see, we are going to uh, be focusing on Acts chapter 17 with a mission to the intellectuals this morning, and that is uh, just what we have in Athens at that time. We've been with Paul on his missionary journey. As as Anthony is, is preaching through the book of Acts, we find ourselves on the second missionary journey. And uh, when I say that, I mean, we, it's good for us to engage with this as if we are along for the ride with them and to uh, get down on street level and to try to understand what it is that is going on. But more importantly, how is Christ's mission to go and preach the gospel into all the world being, being actually fulfilled by these common men? Uh, and, and how does that look today if we tried to do the same thing? Uh, How how can we compare this and come away with some help in us still being on mission to take the gospel into the world, but in a society and in a world where there are many intellectuals who have swaying influence on many people? How can we present the gospel in such a way uh, as to fulfill that mission and have some success in it? That's really what we would like to have. Well. We'll see that in this chapter. Uh, it's, it's, it's amusing, at least, and it's enlightening, at, at best, um, just how Paul, in, in particular, approaches this. Paul, in this place of, uh, of Jewish and Gentile intellectuals, he finds himself among them, and they love doing nothing more than hearing new ideas, hashing out new philosophies, I mean, this is what really intrigues them, this is what gets them going, and uh, waking up in the morning and, and, and talking about what, what new ideas and things uh, do we have that we can talk about, and, and how can I position myself in such a way that I'm respected, and uh, that, I, that my views are held in high esteem, uh, and what camp am I going to find myself, what school of thought? is the school of thought that I adhere to the most. And and so they were doing this, and Paul finds himself alone in Athens. He's waiting on some of his traveling partners, and he's walking down the street, and he's looking on on their main drag at all of the various idols, the objects of worship, and he finds this one to the unknown God. To the unknown God. And uh, when he comes... To speak with some of these Greeks he says this one that that says not known not known the the original is is agnostic actually agnostic the not known God he said this one is the one I want to present to you I want to proclaim him to you and when he does he, he comes in well below the elite attitudes of the day below the self-righteousness of the jewish scholars and below the uh, the uh, sophistry of the greeks and all of their philosophies he comes in below in just a simple preaching of the gospel of christ in athens they would have brought him to a place that that's still there today, and some ruins uh, are here pictured. Uh, but the Parthenon is, is over here, and this place of judgment is Mars Hill, the Hill of Ares, right here. Now, things have changed and some things have been finished, but this is the place where they would have brought uh, Paul to, to talk about new, his new ideas. He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, they were saying. And so they brought him to this place, and people go there today and read this sermon still, and it, it, it's still powerful uh, for the people who do that. But uh, Paul demonstrates the power of the gospel to these people in its simplicity. He said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 that, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power, the dunamis, the dynamite, the power of God to salvation to all who believe, to the Jews first, also to the Greeks. But not everybody thought it was powerful. To the Jews, they were requesting signs. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, The Jews request a sign, he said, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, he told them, Not not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. The reason that I want to set before you that not many wise or noble in this world, not many mighty ones in this world, those in power and authority, the reason that not many of them accept the gospel in general, I believe, is because it, it takes away the responsibility of men to solve man to solve man's greatest needs and puts it squarely on the shoulders of this man named Jesus Christ who died on a cross for them. You don't have to fix the world. You don't have to try to find out what all the problems are with mankind. God has identified what that is. He has offered the solution. He accomplished that in Jesus Christ through the cross. And what's left for men to do is to submit to God's will for them. That's why I think intellectuals, academia who are searching for philosophies to live by, solutions to social justice issues, and and trying to work with the entire world to solve man's problem, these philosophies of humanism, the gospel is foolish to them because it says we don't need your intellect not required here's what's required proper reasoning those two things are not the same there are many intellectuals who reason well and there are many who don't there are many simpletons if you will simple minded people not educated people who reason really well and there are many who don't What the gospel requires is for us to reason about life properly. But why it's a put-off to many who have studied in the ways of men and gained much wisdom in this world and have attached themselves to various philosophies by which they live is because it doesn't require their high degrees of learning, their high... Positions of power doesn't require that. The gospel permeates through anybody's mind who's willing to think and reason about this world properly. And all, and it was pointed out last week, all men are able to reason themselves into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if we look around in this auditorium, we see it crossing uh culture, we see it crossing ethnicities, we see it crossing genders, we see it crossing socioeconomic levels that we've reached, um, educational levels, We we see it transcending those things because the people who want to understand this world and are willing to give the gospel an ear can reason about it and it can make sense to them. So the Jews, it was a stumbling block, the gospel. They wanted wanted a political savior to take them out from underneath Rome. They wanted a military savior. And Rome was the biggest problem on their mind. Not their own sinfulness. Not their own rejection of the Messiah. Rome was the problem. And if there's ever a point to take away during an election cycle like we're in right now, it's that. No matter who's elected as our our elected officials, they're not going to solve man's greatest needs. They're not going to be able to do that. It hasn't happened yet. Why would we expect it to happen upon the appointed elected officials? Now, they can solve some problems. They can solve human needs and felt needs, and they can make good decisions about things. They can influence people toward doing good or evil. They can even influence people toward God or not, but they can't provide the solution that the gospel provides. They can't get into your home and teach your children in the ways of the Lord, all right? And uh, this is something that rests squarely upon the church, to carry this message of the gospel into the world that Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the solution to man's needs, his greatest needs, and that is to understand his sinfulness and to turn his life back over to the Creator who created us to do good works in Christ. So in chapter 17, early on in verses 2 and 3, we see Paul reasoning with the Jews using the Scriptures. He's using the Scriptures. And then um, he is. uh, it says in verse 3, he's explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He's the one. So those of you who already believe in God, let's take a look at your Bibles, okay? And I'll bet you he told his story to them too everywhere he went, right? His personal experience with Christ. But notice he didn't just rely on that and say, you've got to believe me. This really happened. He goes back to the scriptures and he says, let me show you why Jesus is the Christ, that is the appointed one or anointed one of God. I wonder if he went back to the scriptures that Peter used in Acts chapter 2. Peter did this, remember, when he said this isn't what you, you're thinking. All, all of us speaking in various languages that we've never learned. He says, he says that we're not drunk. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quoted Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, where God would not leave his son in Hades in the realm of the dead, He would not leave his soul to corruption, so he would die, but he wouldn't leave him there was the idea. He pointed to Psalm 118, where the one who was the stone, the rock of God that you rejected by hanging on a cross, killing him, he has made him the chief cornerstone. How could he do that? Unless he lives now and reigns as the cornerstone of the building of God, which he promised through David. How could he live? So they were getting the implications of the resurrection passages in the Old Testament. And I also uh, wonder if they discussed Isaiah 53. (laughs) Don't you think that that would have been appropriate? That's what the uh, eunuch, uh, traveling back to Ethiopia, what he was reading when Philip uh, clarified to him that this was talking about Christ. And so perhaps Paul went to the end of Isaiah 53 and talked to him about how this one whom God would send, that would be rejected, that would go to his own slaughter quietly, would then see his seed, see the fruit of his work. He would prolong his days. He would prosper at the right hand of God and and God would divide the spoils or the fruit of his labor with him and with the strong. He's talking about somebody that's living after dying. And so he's he's arguing with the Jews from Scripture and reasoning with them from a basis that they should be very familiar with that Christ must suffer and be raised again. But when we come over to uh, the, the latter part of the chapter, Where in verse 16, beginning, Paul comes into Athens and he begins to talk about these things. Some of the Greek philosophers, Epicureans, and Stoics are are saying, What is this thing you're talking about? Seems like uh, garbage. It seems foolish, but we'll give you a hearing. And they bring him into this Areopagus and allow him to speak. And you know what Paul does? (laughs) He goes back to the creation story. He starts talking about nature and God's work in, in nature and how it's evident. It's evinced right before their eyes. But this is, is foolishness to intellectuals who love to wrestle endlessly with theories and philosophies and worldviews. I'm reminded of uh, one of our, our dear brothers in Christ in Switzerland. He's actually a Brit, uh, he's there with his wife. She's from South Africa. And they live in tune and worship with the congregation there. They, they kind of stick out, you know, because they're not Swiss. Uh, but on the other hand, they just fit right in with that group. But James was explaining to me one day why uh, Britain or England is a hotbed of atheism. And to his admission, this is not me indicting Britain. I'm, I'm, I'm Welsh, so I'm indicting myself too. But he, he said, we take great, great pride in establishing for ourselves, as, uh, establishing ourselves as intellectuals, in taking certain positions on different philosophies and theories, he said, "That's what we do in Britain. That, that's how you're viewed as as an intellectual. Is that you can argue your point, argue your points well. It doesn't matter if they're right or wrong." He said, "But that kind of arrogance, if you will, is what blinded me for so long. But you know what?" finally got to the heart of James, his wife, and her constant conduct in Christ, and her constant chipping away at the simplicity of this creation and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then when she showed it to him one day in a great act of mercy, he finally saw what was being proposed to him that Christ did for him through his wife. (laughs) And he said, as, as long as I was trying to carry about this self, self image of being an intellectual, an academian, I could never see the simplicity of the gospel. That was powerful to me because I, I was talking with someone who had been engaged in that for so long. The implications are another reason why the gospel is foolishness to, to intellectuals, to the Greeks here. The implications, because the message of the gospel doesn't only start with God. In the garden, it ends with God through Christ and judgment. The implications are great. If I accept this teaching that there is a God, that he has created all things, that my breath is actually being breathed because he allows it to be that way, I'm breathing his air in his world, if I believe that, then that means that there's a level of accountability I have because I have purpose. And that's exactly what Paul, in the reading that Aaron gave us of this sermon, goes through and shows. He goes through and shows the obvious created power, creative power evinced in nature, and he says, that's God. That's the unknown God that you're saying, in case we miss one. Now how fulfilling are your religions when you have to have one over here and say, just in case, we want to leave an empty philosophy to be filled in with something we don't know. And Paul says, this is the one you're missing. He's evinced in nature. You're actually living because of him and breathing his air in his world. And Then he moves on to the propagation of the earth from an original pair. Can you you imagine the audacity of speaking to intellectuals about the Garden of Eden and a male and a female that started it all? Paul says, from one blood. He created all the nations of men. From one blood. Then on to the purpose of our being, to seek God in hopes that they'll find him. That's why you're here, to come to know your God. He moves on in verse 28 then to the fact that some among them have even referred to this. Their poets are writing poetry and they're thinking lofty thoughts and they're thinking about. We, we had to have gotten our life and our breath from somewhere, and I don't think it's in this stone statue. He said, your poets are even pointing this out to you, but you're not really engaging Beyond this idolatry. Then he moves on to the inevitable conclusion that God is holding us accountable for the way we live our lives and the decisions that we make. And he's proven to us our worth and value that must not be squandered by sending his own son to live here on this earth and then to offer himself in your place to take your sinfulness upon himself so that you can stand before God cleansed, pure and holy and wear his righteousness upon yourself so that so that you can go free that you can be saved with him. And naturally then finally this risen savior he says has become Lord. The tomb is empty. He is alive. He has proven this to all by raising him from the dead and he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Well, Paul got his three common answers, the same three answers that we get today from any groups of people that this message is preached to. You get those who are mockers. You get those who are deliberators. Let me think about this. And you get those who have already thought themselves to the point there must be, that say, this is the unknown God I was looking for. This is Him. That makes sense, not only of the world, but of the historical facts that I've been reading about through God's work through the Jews. It makes sense about this Christ whom I've been hearing about. Maybe they've seen Him, but doubtful these people have, have met the Christ and I've heard about all of this that was going on in in Judea and in Galilee. So this is the one. This is the one. Some today would mock Paul as a fundamentalist, as a literalist, or anti-scientific. Just laughable. But Paul, let's not forget, very much the intellectual very learned, very capable of setting forth his understanding of things. Simply follows suit with Moses who laid out the creation story and said there was a a man and a woman. The man was created from dust, the woman from his rib. They were given instructions in the garden. They disobeyed God and sinned. They, They believed the lie of a serpent. Can you imagine him telling these things to these intellectuals? And God cast them out of the garden and provided sacrifice for them so that they could still commune with him. But it wasn't adequate sacrifice. There would be a day that Christ would... Can you imagine him telling you? That's all he did is he followed suit with Moses. He followed suit with Jesus, who when Jesus wrangling with the uh, Jewish intellects of his day in Galilee said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one have you not read that and just kept it simple so Paul says in his opening words God who made the world and everything in it and went on to teach them about the simplicity of the gospel with no apologies with no attempts at big words. He just tells the story. We would do well today to follow that similar reasoning. I want to share with you just a few slides from Thomas B. Warren's debate in 1976 with Anthony G. N. Flew, a world-renowned British philosopher and teacher of philosophy at Oxford and other renowned places at Reading in London at this time, and a world-renowned atheist because he was a writing atheist, so he was influencing a lot of people, and one of our brothers in the Brotherhood, Thomas B. Warren, debated him. you know what Thomas B. Warren did? He stuck with Moses. He stuck with Jesus. He stuck with Paul, and he just argued the simplicity of the God of creation, but then at the end of that debate, made an appeal to flu to submit himself to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's fascinating. In 2004, Flew, 28 years later, professed that there is a God. And all he did was use charts like this. He said, Anthony, you're here. You're you're here and there's so many walls that you have to break through before you can say, I know there's no God. He said you have to explain the eternality of matter, that it's just always been here. But even naturalism says the earth is so old. He says you have to explain that life came from rocks and dirt and maybe some water. Life did. Life came from something that was non-living. The law of biogenesis, one of the fundamental scientific laws that we understand to be true is that you can't get life from non-life. Life begins with previously existing life. He said you can't get out of that wall. He said you can't get consciousness from that which has no conscience. You can't get conscience, that is, the ought of morality, that we ought to do certain things and we ought not to do others. He said you can't get that from creatures that have no morality. He said you can't get intelligence from that which has no intelligence. You can't get human beings from that which was not human. He says, until you can do that, and there are 20 walls, actually, the chart can't put them all on there. There are 20 walls. He said, until you get through every one of these, there is a God. He went on to explain some other things about the respiratory and circulatory systems of the human body, the the air that's coming into our lungs. And the blood that is flowing, exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide, he said, he said, this is something without which, this exchange without which, we could only last for a few moments. You have to explain how, over millions of years, something was evolving, something was becoming, it was already alive, but then the exchange of air and blood or oxygen and carbon dioxide started taking place simultaneously. He was putting forth these simple arguments, okay? Saying that these cannot survive without each other. Full systems of your body working together. They can't survive without each other having evolved simultaneously, to be true. And so he just kept chipping away and chipping away and chipping away. But he never left the simplicity he said, let's take somebody who has a, a, a thigh bone replacement, or we could say a hip replacement, it's pretty common nowadays. This is, this is 40 years ago. Let's say a hip replacement. Either way. He says, so you can look at a human being and see that there is a natural thigh bone and a plastic thigh bone, and you would be willing to say that this plastic thigh bone was designed, but the natural one wasn't. The natural, the, the plastic one uh, is simple natural one is a wonder inside those bones that blood, the red blood cells making that bone marrow or bone marrow making the red blood cells give us life and go pick up that oxygen carry it, it Says you have to say this was designed and this was so these are some of the things that I'm proposing to you today with the idea in mind that when we present the gospel of Jesus Christ we don't have to rise up to the level of, of degree or study of higher academia. We don't have to be as witty. We don't have to be as articulate as a great intellect. We just have to be able to reason properly, church. Just have to be able to reason properly. Still today, I would leave with you today some things that you can do to help you not only understand the simplicity of the gospel, but to share it. First of all, it's not, it's God's work. It's not man's work. All right? We don't need to be ashamed of it because I didn't create it. We're talking about God's work here that's been done, that we're living in, and we just need to put it on to Him. We need to understand that it's God's power not man's power, and stick with that, that that the creation and the work of Jesus Christ in the gospel is not man's idea, it's God's idea. Secondly, we need to keep the gospel simple because it involves basic truths, that God created all things, as we're reading about in Paul's sermon to the Athenians, that Jesus came to die for us and was raised by the power of God for us, and that we will give an account. At the end of this life because of this. You know, if this is true, if this is true that all things have been created by God and that Jesus Christ was his son, that automatically, immediately destroys every other philosophy about how we got here about what's right and wrong and moral codes and systems, all the philosophies that men have come up with, militarism and and, uh, humanism and hedonism and all these things that we're coming up with to try to live our lives, it automatically discredits them. It automatically discredits any other religion in the world. It just does by nature. If this is true, God created all things and Jesus Christ is his son, as as embracing as we want to be, we still have to understand it necessarily implies that every other religion is false. Every other religion is false and those people need the gospel. Finally, plant the seeds of the gospel and let God do the work. He didn't tell us to make sure everybody believes this. He told us to plant the seeds of the gospel and to seek seekers. That God is looking for people to worship Him and there are people looking to worship God out there. And we need to be on mission to go and find seekers. So whenever you're at work, you're at school, you're in the locker room, you're in some setting where you have an opportunity to express your views, don't forget, you don't have the the weight of the world upon your shoulders, Jesus did. You don't have the weight of, of the responsibility of making sure everybody in there is safe. You have the responsibility to identify who's really seeking by planting that seed out among people's hearts. And they'll step forth. You'll find them if they're looking. That's the kind of mission we need to be on today. To not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. These great intellectuals, Moses, Jesus, and Paul were not ashamed of it. We shouldn't change it today. And power of the gospel is still there to save that being said if you believe in god and that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him if you have that faith but you haven't had your sins washed away in christ we'll baptize you today into christ jesus we'll baptize you where that symbolic burial god will look down upon that and say I now see a new person coming out of a grave. That's what he sees. I now forgive you, and your sins are behind you. I see newness in my son Jesus. If that's you, please, by all means, don't wait another day. Let's take care of that right now. Let's stand and sing.